A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you've ever read this book, but um, it's called Knowledge of the Holy. It's heavy and simple at the same time. He was a godly man and wrote a bunch of books, but two that I, I mentioned several weeks ago, you need to read for two God men. And Knowledge of the Holy is, is a book that talks about the greatness of God, who he is. He introduces the book by saying this. What comes in your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, corrupt, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, not your actions that define you, but what in his deep heart conceives God, he conceives God to be like. Pretend by a secret law of the soul move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but also of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. Her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. What do you believe about God? What do you envision God to be? Who is God to you? Those are the most important questions you can really think of in your life. They really are. In fact, there's no shortage of books that will help you try to figure that out. Uh, years ago, and, and it's enough times gone by, this might not offend anybody, but um, <laughs> there's a book written called The Shack. Don't tell me credit and read it. I don't know. Um, personally, let me tell you, I never read The Shack. I've read lots of things about The Shack. I've read quotes from The Shack. Um, read excerpts from The Shack. And several good friends that, that read it, and they gave me their objective opinion of it, whatever. But but it was a, it was a book. I, I understand it was a great story. It was an interesting story, not probably literature, not probably like any. But the compelling story of it was was heart gripping in that you have this guy and he, his daughter had been killed brutally, and um, and he was coming to terms, trying to deal with that. And went to his mailbox one day, and there was a letter um, inviting him to go to this shack and and um, to. to Meet God, basically. He goes there, and there he meets the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Um, but God manifests himself to him in three persons. God the Father is um, like uh, Oprah Winfrey, um, and um, I hope this would be a fence like Antonin, a kind of, you know, just loving, grandmotherly figure that just, just you know, loves on him and encourages him, talking to him. And God the Son is a Middle Eastern man, which is not, you know, it's possible. God, the Spirit, I think, was a Oriental woman, I think. And, and these three, three come to the, at different times and talk to him and have this conversation and help him work through the tragedy of his daughter. And that, all of that is fine. The problem is they mess with God. That's the problem. They, they took God, who has revealed himself in the Word of God, and they said, you know what? And I remember having an argument, not an argument, but a discussion with one of my um, family, with a nephew of mine who had read it. He thought it was a great book. And um, he said, well, I think it's cool because... He writes in such a way that he helps people understand God on where they're at. And God, in the story, meets them where they are at. And I think that concept of God is awesome. 
uh, Janet and I had another friend who was was going through a difficult um, divorce and marriage, marital issues, different things, and she read the check. She said, you know what, when I read this, and finally for the first time I was like, this is the God I always hoped existed. And it helped me understand God and the Trinity in a way I never understood God and the Trinity before. Yeah, because it's not God and the Trinity that was written into the book. Again, if it just talked about God and left it ambiguous as far as it, that would be fine. But when they start putting things, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments says not to make God in a graven image. Don't create God into a thing that is created. Don't take God, who is beyond our comprehension, and make him something that is comprehensible. That's the danger in us. But I have to say, you know what? I think practically we all do that. We all take God and we diminish him. We make him somebody that we can manipulate and control and understand because we want God to be understandable. My nephew's problem, as I was talking to him about this, he, he was very teachable and up to this point. But to say that God adjusted himself so that he could be known and, and meet them where they were at. The problem is, to say, when you say that, you say God is not sufficient the way he is. What, what, what they're saying is, you know, God isn't good enough in the way that he is, who, who he is and how he has already represented himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, unified, one God, three personalities. God is insufficient the way he is, so he needs to tweak and change and be diminished and diluted and watered down so that he can meet us where we're at. No, no, no. What we need is the God who is. We don't need a diminished version of him. And in this book, Moses is dealing with these things. Moses has been watching his people go through suffering for years. Moses' life was almost lost because of the suffering and the persecution that was coming to the uh, Hebrew people, to the Israelites. They were under incredible persecution, and Moses grew up with this reality. And so seeing this, he is raised in the house of Pharaoh, taken out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, not Pharaoh's wife. Read the book, don't watch the movie. Movies. And in that, he grows up, potentially being the next Pharaoh. But he gets a little hot-headed at one moment, and he kills a man, and he has to go off into the wilderness and uh, flee for his life because the Pharaoh that was alive was going to kill him because he killed uh, an Egyptian to protect a Hebrew. And that cannot be tolerated. An enslaved, oppressed uh, Hebrew. So he wanders off into the wilderness, and he meets uh, the priest Midian, Jethro. And marries one of his daughters. And there he is for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, all around the wilderness, caring for the sheep of Jethro, for his herds. And in that time, he knows all the watering holes, all the places where there's a little grass, all the places where there's pasture land, all the places, and everything about the desert. But at the same time, his understanding of God and his view of God and his remembrance of God, I'm sure did not leave him, but I'm sure everything he believed that he learned at the knee of his mother before he was given over to the Pharaoh's daughter. We know historically that somewhere uh, on the Sinai Peninsula, let me show you what that looks like. Read this for you. Now Moses was keeping his flock, the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, a priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, or some of your translations might say to the back side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now there's a lot of debate, where's the mountain of God, where's what's going to eventually be known as Sinai, same thing, not Horeb, but Sinai, same thing. Uh, where is that? Some people think it's over here or down here. Um, there's two locations here that they think this is the most traditional site that's, that's elevated. And, but God showed up in a powerful way 
But what we know here, three things that have to be true of wherever this place is. It has to have enough space at the base of it for about two plus million people to camp. Okay, that's one thing. Number two, it needs to have some grass and some pasture land available for their flocks and for Moses at this point to leave his flock there. Why would he leave his flock to the backside of the desert where there's no place for them to eat or drink, right? That would be a bad decision for a shepherd, okay? And so it needs to have some pasture land. And then number three, it needs to have some water sources close there to be able to feed a sheep and feed people of God for them to be able to have some water during that time, although there is a point where God intervenes and gives them water from the rock. That's another point later. But that's what we're looking for. And this place meets that the best, is really this is the best location for that. And also, ancient literature reveals to us that often the Midianites would, re they would refer to the backside of the desert as being the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba. This is this piece of water which is connected to the Red Sea, which is down here. This is the backside of the desert. So this is where Moses is at. He's wandering around that area. And somewhere on the other side of the Red Sea, over here is a place where they are burning metals and different things to be used in the temples that the Hebrew people are working. And these furnaces for cooking bricks and, cooking and heating down smeltering metal and different things are so hot that they would line up the Hebrews' slaves. And there's, there's pictures of this historically. This is, I mean, like drawings that tell us about this. They would line them up and they were like disposable. It was so hot that they would... Often they would just they plant a guy up there and he feeds the thing and then eventually he just kills over and dies from from uh, from the heat and they just throw him aside and another one next you know and the next one goes up there <laughs> so, so uh, conceptually this tells us that it is likely we don't know this but it's likely that Moses as he's wandering in the wilderness there were times where he would peek over wander to that part of the desert he would peek over and he would see are things the way that they were when I left he sees that nothing's changed. My people are still oppressed. My people are still suffering. My people are still... So undoubtedly, Moses is asking his heart, God, do you even care? Do you even know? Not to mention the people of Israel. What are they thinking? Do you know that word had to have spread that one of the Hebrew boys was not killed when he put the basket in he's being raised by the daughter of Pharaoh? Do you know they knew that? Word had spread undoubtedly that he was raised and maybe he's going to be delivered and then it comes to a pinnacle. Imagine the gossip, the conversations, the, the grapevine spreading as they hear that. Yeah, the, the son of Pharaoh, one of our people, one of our Israelite brothers, he killed an Egyptian. Oh, really? Maybe this is the beginning. Maybe God's about to set us free. Next thing you know, he runs off into the wilderness. And it's been four decades. Nobody has heard from him. The expectations of the people have risen. Maybe God is sending a deliverer, only to be crushed that much more. Forty more years go by. They're in their desperate state, their desperate situation. In everything they believe about God, it's on the table. Many of them tried the Hebrew God, the, the Egyptian gods. Many of them were worshiping false gods. Many of them worshiped a lot of things. And then some of them held true to the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But who is God? And if there is a God, or who, if the God of our patriarch, our, our fathers, is real, who is he? Where is he? What is he doing? How come he hasn't shown his power to deliver his people? What is he doing? That's where we find ourselves. Verse 1, keeping his flock, backs out of the wilderness, comes to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him 
in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, when you read that, the angel of the Lord, obviously in your mind, naturally we're all thinking, well, who's the angel of the Lord? Is that Michael? Is that some other angel? You know, who is that? And let the context of the passage, let's read on and see if it reveals for us who the angel of the Lord is. Because that phrase is found throughout the, the Bible. Um, and so it's, it's important for us to use 67 times in the Old Testament. So it would be important for us to define it based on what we see in these next verses. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the the bush. So, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame and fire coming out of the midst of the bush. In verse 4, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, or we, we would, they would hear it, Moshe, Moshe. He said, here am I. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy. He said, I am the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk, honey, to be to the places, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, behold, the cry of my people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may Bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, of Israel, out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, what's happening in this, there's lots going on. Uh, we have a burning bush. We have something that is clearly combustible, okay, that is easy to ignite. Took one of my boys camping this past week, and we were, you know, trying to get a fire started. And so, burning a, getting a fire going in the desert, not as difficult in that. If you can find some wood, it's always fairly dry. Things burn quickly, and so uh, it's combustible, and yet he looks over, and this bush is ignited, and it's burning, but yet it's not burning, right? It's, it's, it's inflamed, but yet it's not being consumed, and it just continues to burn. not possible for that to happen apart from something, and so Moses sees this and goes, well, what is going on here? And he draws closer to it, and God speaks to him from the bush says, whoa, 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 do not walk any closer. Don't come any closer. And so he tells him to take off his shoes. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of thoughts that you can think 
draw from this. But one of the things for a shepherd back then, they would have, you know, they couldn't just go to, um, you know, Foot Locker or, you know, Shoe Carnival or wherever to get their shoes. They would make their own shoes out of leather from animals that they cared for, whatever. When they would eat an animal, whatever, they would use every part of that animal, particularly nomadic people and people that are living out in the wilderness. You, you don't have Walmart if you lose something, so you have to be self-sufficient. And so one of the things they would do is they would take that leather and they would cut it and they would they would um, dry it and form it, tan it, whatever, and they would create for them shoes so that they can walk in rocky, difficult terrain. And that was a picture of their ability to navigate, to work, to walk, to do whatever. And it was a sign of self-sufficiency. God says, you're not going to bring anything you've made to this conversation. I want you to take off your shoes because where you're about to step, the other thing is, if you've ever been in a, um, the home of somebody that from the uh, Oriental background, um, Asian background, one of the first things you can do is take your shoes off. I'll never forget being in Thailand, and I preached barefoot, okay? I was preaching there, and we walked in, we walked up to this beautiful building that they had built in the middle of nowhere where God had just birthed this incredible congregation of people that loved God, formerly Buddhists that had followed Jesus, and it's incredible. And all of us, a group of college students, we all left our shoes outside. Everybody, before you step in, everybody leaves their shoes outside. And so everybody in the whole building is barefoot. So I'm up there, you know, on the stage and preaching barefoot. Because I'm thinking about this passage of Scripture. And I'm thinking about what Moses must have felt. And then when you're in, it was a sign of respect. Because when you're talking, when you're walking out in the streets in a place that doesn't have good uh, sewage in a third world country or a, you know, pre-civilized kind of areas, whatever. There's a lot of other things that you might step in or on or walk in the midst of that you track. And, and it just, you know, the pathways are dirty. Plus, if you're a shepherd, you're walking around sheep all the time, there's certainly there's going to be a problem there. All right, so uh, your feet are going to be a little dirty. And so he takes them off because the place he was about to step had been sanctified by God, by the presence of God. And it was holy. And his self-sufficiency and the dirt on him from the journeys of his life needed to be left behind if he's going to come into the presence of God. And so he does that. He does that. He walks up, looks upon the bush, sees this sight, and God speaks to him. He tells him not to come near. Verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. I don't have time to develop this like I'd like to, but I just want to plant the seed in your mind. Whenever we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he appears at different times. He appears here. He's going to appear when uh, the three Hebrew boys are thrown into the furnace in the book of Daniel because they would not bow down to the big golden giant God. They wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And so they are cast into a fiery furnace that's so hot that the people that throw them in die getting them into the furnace. And when they get into the furnace... They can see kind of in the side door from a distance, and they see a fourth person in there, and we are known that he is the angel of God. The angel of God appears all kinds of different places all the time on the Old Testament. I believe we, the Bible makes it clear that we cannot look upon God and live. We talk about God the Father, but I think that what he's seeing is God the Son. And this is a Christophany, not just a theophany. Theophany, appearance of God. Christophany, appearance of Jesus. Christ in the Old Testament. And so I think who he's looking at is Jesus, Jesus speaking to him uh, from this burning bush. 
next who he thinks to be the angel of the Lord. By the way, uh, Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. I think Jacob was wrestling with God. He was wrestling with Jesus. Okay? God's spirit does not have a body like a man. God the Father. And so he's, he's wrestling with Jesus. That's a term for another day. But three things I want to give you before we move on from the burning bush. Three things just to know about this imagery. We don't know exactly why God did it this way, but there's three things we can pull from this. Many things, but three want to highlight. Number one, the burning bush reminds us of God's glory. Reminds us of the glory and the power of God. That God can take something combustible and preserve it and yet consume it all at the same time. That God is not confined by science. God spoke the world in existence. God is the only person who can make something from nothing. No scientist can do that. Scientists can make life in a lab. They can do all kinds of amazing things, but they cannot create out of nothing. You know, you, you can't build a building with Legos without some Legos, right? And so they can take God's Legos that he's created in this world, you know, molecules and atoms and all, and they can put them together and they can structure something on a nano level that's Blows my mind. Blows my mind. Incredible. They can do some amazing things, but they can't make something out of nothing. I can make something out of nothing. God can take something and consume it, and yet it not be consumed. And so it shows us the power of the Lord God. Secondly, it pictures God's acknowledgement of the affliction of Israel. Israel undoubtedly had been in the fires of affliction for 400 years, 300 years, for a long time. It's been 400 plus years since they had wandered into Egypt uh, for refuge under Joseph. And generations have gone by. Four centuries have gone by. And somewhere in the midst of their suffering began, affliction began. And as they continued to grow as a strong and mighty nation, they were oppressed. And God knew that. And so they were in the fire of God's uh, refining power in their life. And God was preparing them for the day when he would deliver them. They experience the affliction of the fire. And thirdly, it pictures God's plan for Moses and Israel. I want you to understand that, and, and, and arguably for us. God was about to use Moses directly and indirectly the nation of Israel in a powerful way to deliver um, his people, yes, but then also to show his power and his identity and uh, and to reveal himself on the earth in a way that nobody had ever seen him before. And so he was going to come on them almost like a fire and use them and yet not consume them. They wouldn't be spent in the process. They would be built up in the process. They would be refined in the process. They would be utilized in the process. It will be hot. It will be uncomfortable. But nonetheless, it will be glorious as God reveals himself and comes upon them and is going to use them like a simple bush to declare and to illuminate his glory to the world in a way that nobody before and arguably even after had ever seen the glory of God. God wants to do that with you. God wants to take your life and your sufferings and your challenges and your struggles and all those things, and he wants to come upon you, and he wants to redeem them. He wants to use your challenge, your failures, your sin, and your sufferings the highs and the lows and all those things. And he doesn't need you to bring your sandals to the conversation. He doesn't need you to bring your self-sufficiency to the conversation. He doesn't need you to bring your brain and your wisdom and your knowledge and your 
creativity and your talents and all of these things, and it comes, God, I'm ready. I, I got some things to offer. I can do this and I can do that. And I go, which one of my strengths do you want to use? And God would say, I don't need any of your strengths. I just need you to be disposable for me. I just need you to entrust yourself to me. I just need you to allow me to put a match to your life to declare my glory in a way that you're going to feel like you're going to be consumed, but yet I'm going to illuminate my glory through your life in a way that you, just, you can never create and conjure up with your own gifts. There's a vision of God that we've got to grasp. And this, we're not even there yet. He hasn't even revealed himself yet, and we're just talking about a bush right now that's on fire. So it goes on from there, and he says, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people. Verse 7, really quickly. Verse 7 tells us, and the way it's written, you can see it even in the translation in English, but even more clearly, the original language. This is a response to a previous conversation. It's not like God just suddenly says, surely I have seen the affliction of it. You know, if God's responding to a prayer, to a question, to a, an accusation possibly that has been made about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Where is he at? Where's he been? What's he doing? Is he going to show up? Is he going to help? Is he going to, is he going to intervene? Does he even care about his people? And God answers that question without it being verbally asked in this scene. God says, surely I have seen the foot of my people. You know, a hair doesn't fall out of your hair, your head. I mean, I mean, I know a sparrow doesn't fall out of the sky. I mean, I know. I mean, I hold the created, the universe that I spoke in existence in the palm of my hand. I measure the universe that your humble telescope came to find it end of, and yet I know the intimate details of your life. Nothing happens that is beyond my comprehension, my vision, my, my mind. I know of my people who are Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from broad land, flowing of milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, Jebusites, and now Behold, the pride of my people Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression of the Egyptians and oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here's where the problem happens. Moses, I have no doubt, wanted to see God's people delivered. Moses, because again, he, he kind of tried to help at some point, right? Moses. All people, he understood the power of Pharaoh and the desperation of his people. Moses understood. Moses saw the needs. Moses saw the suffering. Moses knew what, he, what God needed to do. But it's one thing to know the need. It's one thing to see the suffering. It's one thing to acknowledge the problem. And it's another thing to say, God, I want to be part of the solution. Moses was fired up about God seeing the affliction of his people. Moses was fired up about God coming down to intervene. But Moses wasn't as excited when God said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Suddenly, Moses starts stepping back on, wait, 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 I don't know. Okay, what, God? You're going to do what? But God, and he begins this series of, well, but I this, and but I that, and what about this, and what about that, and what about, and all these things happen. This is the rest of this conversation for uh, this section of scripture. 
who is God? He says. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, God, I, look, I could have done that maybe at some point. I don't know. I thought maybe God had a plan for my life. But then I killed a guy, and I'm really disqualified, and I've been out of the game for 40 years, and I'm a, sh- I'm a shepherd. I'm a shepherd now. I'm not the son of Pharaoh. I'm not going to be the next Pharaoh. I'm not a king anymore. I don't talk to those kind of people. I'm not in that kind of mindset. I don't wear a power tie. I don't have that kind of authority, money, wealth, influence. Not that I, I'm not the guy to do what you're asking me to do. Who am I? Who, what, what, what do I bring to the equation? What can I do? No, I can't, I can't help you. I, he said, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel, I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. They ask, What is his name? What shall I say to him? What am I going to tell him? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is my name. My name. They need to know who my, what my name is. I'm not just the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I'm not just those things and who I've revealed myself to be there. But I want you to understand my name. My name, now that you know, here's my name. My name is I am. My name. My name forever, and thus I shall be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together. Say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, out of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has appeared to me, and I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out, up out of the affliction of Egypt in the land of Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, all those people, a land flowing of milk and honey, and they will. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go before the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me, uh, has sent, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. By the way, the first request was pretty simple. We're not trying to be set free. We're not looking for freedom. We're just we're just looking for a long weekend. That's all we're looking for. We're just looking for a long weekend. We just want an extra day. We just want Labor Day. Okay, that's all we're asking for. We just want Labor Day off. We just want three days in a row that we can have so we can go worship our God and wilderness. And we'll come back after that. That was the initial request. Not so bad, right? We just want a national holiday. Can you please do that for us? And so but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor the sight of the Egyptians. And not only are you going to be set free, but when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, for gold, for jewelry, and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters and 
so you shall plunder the Egyptians. You're going to go shopping before you go, ladies. It's like, ladies, there's something here for you too. Okay, guys, you're not going to be afflicted with the suffering and the tax message and all that stuff. And ladies, you need to go shopping before you go out. That's kind of what's going on here in our language. So you're going to plunder the Egyptian people. You have nothing, but you're going to be given something. And then chapter 4, verse 1, the most sacred. But behold, they will not believe me and listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And then God gives them a series of signs. So what, what is going on? God says to him, what, who should I say sent me? He says, tell them that I am sent you. The Lord's essence is his being, who he is. His name expresses the fact that it's impossible to limit God and his nature to a name. Uh, we can describe God as, as faithful. We can say God is loving. We can say God is just. God is gracious, powerful. We could say God is almighty. In our culture, we would say God is loving, 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 but there's only one attribute of God that has ever been elevated to the third degree that's been repeated three times. It's not that God is nice and loving, 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 but it's that God is holy, holy, holy. And that is his essence. That's who he is. And all of those are rightful descriptions of God, but none of them are his name. None of them perfectly describe God. They're all elements of who he is. The patriarchs Meaning, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they knew God in a, in a variety of different ways. God had revealed himself to them, and they called him things like El Elyon, God Most High, Hod, Yitshak, fear of Isaac, God's the fear of Isaac, El Shaddai, God Almighty, uh, El Roy, the God who sees me, El Bethel, the God of Bethlehem, uh, El Quana, God the consuming fire, God our banner, God, all of these different descriptions, and all of those are rightful and, and spectacular, wonderful descriptions of who God is, but none of them ultimately defines God in his essence. Those tell us about God, but they don't define God because he is indefinable. The only way that God can come down to our level where we can put this in our little finite, mean-up-sized brains compared to God's infinite wisdom knowledge is to say, I am who I am. His name is I am that I am, or I shall be whom I shall be, or just that he is, or the one who is, the one who causes to be, is probably one of the best versions of this. The one who causes to be. You to describe yourself. We're going to have a little conversation. Tell me about yourself. I am, I'll describe myself. Who are you? Well, I'm a father. I'm a husband. My name's David. I'm, I'm a pastor. I am a uh, this. I'm that. I was born at this place. I grew up in this city. Uh, I spent a lot of my life in this area. Went to college here. Went to PSU. I can say I went to college. I can say I went to seminary. I can say where I went. I can say about my kids. I can say all these different things. All these things would be true about me, but none of them. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, I had a beginning and I will have an end. And I have not caused anything to be. I have not self-sufficient. I am not beyond. I am not self-existent. And when we understand who God is, we understand the name for God, we have to understand that God is the self-existent one. He's the only one who's not defined by time and by origin. God is the only one who doesn't have an origin. There's not a t-shirt for God established in the day. Okay, God has never not been 
I don't know, it's hard for us to grasp and comprehend. We can't comprehend it because it's a category none of us have ever experienced because none of us have ever been always. None of us have ever existed forever. All of us have a beginning. All of us have will have an end. So our lives are defined, our earthly lives are defined by a little dot, a little line, a little dot. On the plane of God's eternality that stretches in every existence, every direction, infinitely beyond. And yet in God's self-existence, eternality, he has caused the world to be. And there is a beginning and there will one day be an end. That is who we are to find inside the self-existence of God. Beyond our comprehension. So when God reveals himself, he reveals the essence of his being. He, simply put, is the one who was caused to be. He just, just is. I am. Who sent you? I am. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, Jesus is in an argument. It happens all the time with the Pharisees. They're arguing about who Jesus is. And they say, so you think you're greater than you're greater than Moses, you're greater than Abraham, you're greater than the patriarchs, you're greater than the father Abraham. Who do you think you are, arrogant teaching rabbi, to think that you're greater than Abraham? Jesus' simple answer is, well, I, Abraham was so excited when he, when he saw my coming. Okay, think of the category there in your brain, right? You know, everybody has a beginning, everybody has an end, everybody lived at some point in time. But now, here they are, 2,000 years removed from Abraham living on this earth, and Jesus says, Jesus, born of a Nazarene, uh, a Nazarene born of a woman, you know, Mary, they, they, they know where he's from, they know his region, can anything good come out of um, Nazareth? You know, it, it's uh, all, all these thoughts about Jesus, right? They, they, they've heard something, they know his family, they know, they know Mary, they know where he grew up, they know... And yet he just, what, okay, what did you say? Abraham was excited when he saw my coming. Like I, like I knew him before I was known on the earth. Before I came here, I, I knew Abraham. I knew him. And Abraham. He was, he was excited when he saw that I was, was going to come on the mission. So I, Abraham understood that Jesus was coming. He was going to be the Isaac. He was going to be on the altar. He was going to die in the place of uh, his God's son, God's people, died for their sins. Right? Abraham undoubtedly knew some of those, they understood some of that stuff. So he's excited when he saw it's time, Jesus is coming, boom, going to the earth, born of a virgin, little manger, Christmas, right? Abraham's excited. And then they said, so, what? And he, he says this statement, and this is just hopefully blow your mind. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. Not I was. He's not Mormon. Jesus is not the head of the Church of Latter-day Saints. He doesn't have a brother named Lucifer. Jesus wasn't born. He always has been. And before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. I I've always been. I've always been with myself. God the Father, God the Spirit. We've always, we've always been together. 
Not only is he self-existent, he is self-sufficient. He doesn't need a friend. He doesn't need a buddy. He didn't create you and me because he was lonely, wanted something to do in his cosmic eternal sandbox. So he thought, please make a little friend. I'll make a little fuzzy animal I can enjoy. That. No, he created you to enjoy who he is. He created you to know who he is. He created you to enjoy the incredible, glorious, wonderful fellowship that he has, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, together in his godness. I want you to know he is. So he tells Moses, tell them I am. Sent you. This is going to be my name forevermore. We find our origin in God, not God in man. God created man, and man, understand this, this is pivotal. Man sinned by choosing self reliance, self governing, and to be self sovereign. We call these things, your self-line, your self-governing, yourself. We said, God, you know what? I want, we, we, our buddy, you know who we're like? We're like Satan. We're like Lucifer who declared, I will, I will go into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God and I will be like the most high. So we declare in rebellion, I am. No, you're not God. I am. I want to be on the throne. I want to sit on your throne. I want to be in charge of my universe. You can have your universe, but I'm going to have my universe. And I'm going to be captain of my own ship, of my own life. I'm going to do things the way I want to do it. I don't really need your help, God. And so we have rebelled against God. We've said, I want to do things my way. Which is why at the beginning of this message, I said the most important thing about you is to understand who God is. And for many of us, you might know about the God of the Bible, but quite frankly, if you were to be really honest with yourself, if you were to define God, you'd say, well, who is God to you? You'd say, I am God. I'm God. I do what I want. I take care of myself. I provide for myself. I fight for my reputation. I fight for my story. I fight for this. I fight for that. I do whatever. Everything I have, I, I got my. I am. I'm God. I'm charting my plan. I have my ways. I. And you said, no, that's not me. No, no, no. I, I don't want. Do you struggle with anxiety? Do you struggle with worry? Do you struggle with what? How could you worry if you didn't think you were God? If you know God's God, I don't have to worry. But if you know God's God, He is. So I don't have to worry because God is. Worry is a sin. The word reveals who we really believe is God. Struggle with all these different things that are so alluring to us, that just seem so attractive and so beautiful and so satisfying. If I just have this thing or that thing or this relationship or that person or my life turns out this way or that way or this, then, then I will really like that and I will feel good. This is all false gods. I, I'm the only one who is. You're trying to find identity from things that to decompose. I'm the only one who can consume something and it not be spent. And I want to consume your life. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. God's self-existence, he is omniscient. He tells him, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and he's going to say no. And so, but at the end, I'm going to accomplish it. But this is all part of my plan. So God tells him, I know exactly what's going to happen here. You don't know, but I am. So I know. 
you don't, you're not. You don't know, but I know. And so he tells them, I am omni-science, omniscient. I know all things conscious. I am omni-conscious, basically, is what he's saying. I know all things. And then Moses is confronted with the fact that there's a mission, and then there's a mission field. And he's all about, I said this a minute ago, he's all about the mission. Deliver the people. Great, God. Go get them. I'll be over here on the mountain waiting for you. But he's not about the mission field. Quick thought. You, you, there's two categories in this room. The missionaries and the mission field. And you can't say you believe about God's mission if you're not going to be a missionary. And if you're not going to be a missionary, then you're part of the mission field. Because something's wrong there if you're not compelled to go. In your view of who God is and what he's called you to do. So, last thing is the excuses. Why wouldn't they believe? Well, because they understand who God is. And so, in conclusion, here's, here's the thoughts for you. Three quick thoughts. They're not on the board. Just, just listen. God wants to use us. He wants to use you. He wants to use us as an instrument for His glory to be visible through our lives. He wants to illuminate, light up, ignite our lives to be used to declare who He is. God's presence may seem like it burns us up. It may seem like it's going to overtake us. It, it might burn with some suffering. But understand that you will not be consumed and God will be illuminated through your life. And so just surrender yourself. To be used by God, however he wants to be used. God wants to use you as an instrument for glory. Number two, think about this. Do we come to him with self-reliance? Do you come to God? Do you approach God with self-reliance or with humble dependence? Have you come to the point in your life where you're willing to take your shoes off and say, okay, I realize I don't bring anything but dirt to this conversation. So I'm going to lay that stuff aside and I'm coming to you bankrupt, God, and I'm saying all of That's repentance. Faith. That's conviction, repentance, coming to awareness of your need for God, and then Him using you. Understand this. There's only one thing that can survive in the presence of God Almighty. There's only one thing that can survive in the presence of God Almighty, and that is humility. Closer to the ground, the better we are. we come to him with self-reliance or humble dependence? And lastly, remember the name. Remember the name. Take your life and put God and who he is at the top and then reorder everything else based upon who is going to sit on the throne of your life. You have a choice. You can be the little lowercase i, lowercase a-m, am, I am. Or you can allow God to be the great I am. And you can allow God to use you in his great story plan of redemption. As he calls you to take the message of hope and of salvation to a lost and dying world. To go be part of the glory of God declaring to the mission field that God alone can set.